Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 161, and today's guest is Liz Powers, co-founder and chief happiness spreader at Artlifting. It's one thing to build a successful business, but it's a whole different level if you can build a business out of doing good and creating better lives for others. As you'll hear in this podcast, Liz has a heart of gold and a do-whatever-it-takes attitude to help others out in need. She has a history of volunteering, and during her time at Harvard, Liz realized that there was an opportunity to help the less fortunate succeed through art. This led Liz and her brother to pull together $4,000 from their personal savings to create art lifting. The company empowers artists living with homelessness or disabilities through the celebration and sale of their artwork. Its impact? Well, artists have earned over $1 million from art lifting. In this podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Liz's experience and her background in volunteering for nonprofits, the inspiration that ultimately led to the start of art lifting, all the details on art lifting, and the massive impact they're having on improving the lives of the homelessness or disabled, how they raise capital from prominent investors like the founder of Tom's Shoes while building a social enterprise, the evolution of their business from a direct-to-consumer model to a more sustainable B2B focus, advice for other founders around getting PR, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. The goal of this podcast is to tell a great story about an entrepreneur and how she built a successful social enterprise. However, Liz doesn't even know that I'm doing this, but I would be remiss not to include a quick promo about art lifting. If you're moving into new office space or you're just looking to spruce up your office, go to artlifting.com for more information. Their customers include companies like Google, PayPal, LinkedIn, and many others, and you can actually see their artwork on display from Rapid7's office tour on VentureFizz. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Liz. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, I don't know if you remember, but we we first met at the Harvard Innovation Lab during like, a, it was like a demo day, I think. I think Love Pop was there too, which was the first time I met Love Pop. Uh, so it was, it was an amazing time. And I, uh, I think I went up to you and was like, hey, are you guys raising money? And you're like, yeah, yeah, we're, I think you were at the time. And I had just finished reading uh, Tom's, the founder of Tom's, like his like his book about, you know, the business of doing good basically. And I'm like, wow, you know, I think this, you know, the founder of Tom's might be interested in investing in your company. And you're like, um, we haven't announced yet, but yes, he's an investor. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I always laugh when I think of that, where I was like, of course you already had talked to him. That's so uh, funny. I didn't remember that story. I love hearing it. (laughs) So I always remember weird things, but, um, you know, so we're going to talk about the business of doing good, which is amazing what you've done with art lifting and the impact, not just from building a company that's successful, but also to the people that it ultimately is helping. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But before we get into that, I noticed from, you know, exploring kind of your background a little bit deeper that, uh, you know, sailing was a big piece of who you are. Uh, so talk about, you know, how does sailing compare to uh, entrepreneurship? Because, you know, it's competitive sailing. So how does that compare to building a business? I... I think sailing, similar to any sport, is uh, has many parallels to entrepreneurship. So one is, so I raced throughout my whole life, including in college, and a lot of times reading the water is, it's kind of like a chess match. Mm. So you can actually look at the water and predict how the wind will change throughout the course of the race. 
So if the water looks uh, really rippled and the ripples are coming from a slightly different direction, then you know, okay, one, the wind's gonna be stronger and two, it's going to shift. Um, so those details within sailing, most people aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, and that has a lot of parallels to, you know, reading the market with entrepreneurship. Normally you're creating something completely new. So it's uh, not making blank guesses, but um, really smart hypotheses of, well, based on this factor and this factor, I think this is the right direction for my company. But just like sailing as well, sometimes your predictions are wrong. So you thought the left side of the course was going to have a ton of wind and it was going to switch directions. And then you're on the Charles River where the wind shifts all the time and you end up losing out. Um, so similar to being an innovator and entrepreneur, being willing to accept, okay, I was wrong and now I need to adapt and shift my course. Such a, such a good analogy. Yeah, that's absolutely like dead on. You just never know what you do the best you can based on the information that's in front of you. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your background. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Um, so I grew up just outside of Boston in a town called Wellesley. I, what I was like as a kid, I think, so I've got two older brothers. I think they both agree I'm annoyingly peppy. <laughs> um, I've always been a naturally positive person and uh, just always loved sports and creating art and creating crafts. Uh, so my brothers would joke growing up that I would do all homemade Christmas presents, not because I loved them, but because I was cheap. <laughs> it was kind of both are true at the same time. <laughs> They're always like, oh, you're making more meaningful stuff for mom and dad. You're making us look bad. <laughs> no, they're like, why aren't you buying me a pair of jeans? Why are you making me this craft? <laughs> now, when did you actually get into volunteering? Not till college, actually. Okay. Uh, so in high school, I was doing varsity sports every season. So I was really just hyper-focused on studying and sports. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I got to college, so I went to Harvard, and Harvard Square is a big hub for homelessness. And the town where I grew up didn't have any homelessness. So just started volunteering. Um, originally was flipping pancakes at a soup kitchen. And then learned while this, that was a very necessary job, it wasn't the best fit for my personality. Uh, because I really wanted to get to know the guests and see if I could help uh, in the long term. So I ended up switching volunteer positions to doing volunteer social work throughout college and learned so much from that. So what, now was that the, uh, the Lyft program that you were a part of? or? Yeah, exactly. So what is Lyft? So Lyft is a national nonprofit. Uh, they train students to work alongside social workers. Uh, so I had my own client base, but as I, you know, ran into troubles of what is a Section 8 housing voucher and how can I help solve this particular client's issue, I could go to social workers for advice. 
Um, so it was a great program because it gave me a ton of responsibility and training, but also gave um, community members who are homeless or had disabilities a way to get hands-on holistic help. Um, part of the beauty of Lyft is they don't say, we just help on housing, but you have to go somewhere else for food or somewhere else for a job. They say, you know, come as you are and we'll help on whatever we can help with. And, and like when you've recognized that, you know, the homeless issue in, in, in Cambridge, like when you entered Harvard, did you know that, hey, this is something that, you know, more on the, the charitable side of things, that that was something that may be a career that you were going to pursue? Or is it just, it kind of just happened that way? Kind of just happens. Um, like I thought I was going to be a math major. I've always been really into math. Okay. Um, but happens upon sociology in part through a class that was activities-based learning, mm -hmm. it's called. So part, half of the class was doing the volunteer social work. Um, and I really just fell in love and it was a winding road from there. And then you know, there was more that you started getting involved in because then you ultimately started like an art show, right? So City Heart, which still exists today, correct? Correct. So how did that come together? So during four years of volunteer social work in college, I heard repeatedly from clients that they were really lonely. And that got to me emotionally. So I had, you know, felt like this isn't rocket science. I had four clients in a row, an hour each, all one-on-ones, and would hear, I'm lonely, I'm lonely, I'm lonely. So, you know, what a no-brainer to yeah. figure out a way to bring individuals who are lonely together to support one another. And since I've been an artist my whole life, I thought, why don't I just throw art supplies on the table in the two local shelters in Central Square in Cambridge? Mm -hmm. um, so applied to Harvard. Harvard has two self-designed fellowships per year for graduating seniors. So they pay your salary for a year to start up this self-designed project. So mine was creating art groups in two women's shelters. Was really blessed to get that fellowship. But then a month in, I realized there were six existing art groups in shelters in Boston. Okay. So I could have been referring people for four years mm. <laughs> to yeah. these existing groups. And I felt guilty because I just wrote this whole essay and won this competitive fellowship on what I was saying was a need in the community. So it was like a double whammy of feeling guilt of not using this resource. And what did I not do my research before applying to this grant? Mm -hmm. But then the wheels turned a little more and I realized, wait a second, I've been in the field. I've been working with all these shelters that happen to have art groups, but they're just not advertised. Mm -hmm. So if I didn't know about them, a normal person outside of the field has no idea and decided to create City Heart, which was an annual art show that brought together all of the local art groups and shelters in Boston as a way to um, sell, advertise together you know, strengthen numbers and help artists earn much needed money. That is absolutely amazing. So was that the uh, kind of the, the foundation that made you kind of think even deeper that led you down the path to start 
a company? Yeah, so City Heart um, is a one day annual show. Um, it was, well, still is, um, completely volunteer run. 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. Uh, and I got donors to donate the space, to donate tables and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But as that grew over time, I thought, wait a second. First of all, what if the donors dry up? Then this just falls apart. Mm -hmm. This isn't a sustainable model. Second, we're only helping artists one day a year. What about the other 364 days where they want to sell work? Um, third, this is just in Boston, and there are, I learned there are a thousand existing art groups and shelters and disability centers all across the country. And fourth, we were only helping artists sell original work, but what about prints and licensing their work so they can make unending money from each piece? So those Areas for improvement um, were the foundation for art lifting. And my brother and I teamed up on, okay, let's solve these problems and create something that's financially sustainable and scalable. So you started out with, uh, you and your brother took 4,000 of your own personal savings to start art lifting, correct? Yeah, we each put in two, yeah. That is amazing. So no, no, I'm sure, you were thinking about or other people may have been giving you advice like um you know this should be a non-profit like why you know for-profit wow really how i don't know it sounds kind of like it should be a non-profit type of thing liz like so were you getting that type of feedback when you were kind of embarking on this that this is a for-profit venture yeah i've heard many times <laughs> liz you're an idiot <laughs> um yeah but especially at the beginning because people, when they hear you have a social mission, it's kind of like a gut reaction of, well, it needs to be a nonprofit then. Um, so I got a lot of pushback in the beginning, but I felt so strongly because I had been in the nonprofit world for eight years and I just felt like banging my head against the wall sometimes due to the limited funding. Mm -hmm. uh, one example, when I was running art groups and shelters, Obviously, we needed art supplies. And I applied to an arts grant that was 14 pages long. And from when I applied to when I received the check, it was a year. A year. <laughs> and guess how and much the pages. check was for? I, I don't want to, because I bet you it's just 5000 maybe? I don't know. $5,000. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's going to last... <laughs> I, I mean, you're going to blow through that in a couple of weeks of our supplies or a month. I don't know, but it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's, I mean, you're going to be chasing right. grants all the time as a nonprofit then, right? Or finding large donors or something. Yeah. So after many experiences like that over the eight years, I realized um, all of the people that were being critical of uh, creating a for-profit, for-purpose company were people from the for-profit world. Mm. But all of my friends in nonprofits were like, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just took um, the doubters with a grain of salt and just uh, felt really strongly creating something that's financially sustainable that doesn't need grants is the way to go. So how did you get started? 
So uh, my brother Spencer and I put in, you know, a small bit of savings. We, uh, neither of us are coders, uh, but we were blessed to live in a time where you don't need to have any experience to create an online marketplace. Um, so we just set up Shopify. Uh, we started with four artists that I already had a relationship with from local shelters. And we probably put on like 30 pieces in total. And those pieces could all be ordered as prints and um, messaged local writers. Um, we're really blessed to get picked up by the Globe and we're on the cover of the Boston Globe business section a couple weeks after we launched. You're kidding. <laughs> early December, so great time for the holidays. Amazing. And that just led to um, immediate sales, our first 10,000 in sales. And then early on, you also got like, even like other outlets. I mean, the, the Today Show, the New York Times, so the, the press just kept rolling. Um, like, other entrepreneurs would like, would like be ecstatic to, to receive that. So, so how did you, you know, was it just the story that it was, you know, the business of doing good and such a compelling mission behind it that you think like the Today Show would gravitate towards? Yeah, the Today Show was actually inbound. So they wow. emailed info at Artlifting, um, which Amazing. was, I felt like I was being punked or something. <laughs> <laughs> like what is this a joke um but i really do feel it's the story um, yeah. our artist stories are so compelling mm -hmm. um, and it's rare in a social enterprise to know the tangible impact that you're making on an individual um, typically as i'm sure you're aware social enterprises have the model of giving a percentage back to a charity um, so having our artist stories front and center really helped, uh, not only in gaining customers, but also interest from press to cover their stories. Now, as we, you know, I started kind of the interview by talking about, you know, you raising capital, which I would think uh, a lot of entrepreneurs would be like for a, you know, more of a social enterprise. That'd be really, I mean, it's hard to raise capital as it is, never mind a, you know, social enterprise type of uh, company. So how did you go about the fundraising process and, you know, getting someone, someone like Blake as a, you know, investor in the company? Um, so I was really hesitant to even pitch investors. Um, the reason for that was because of my background, I had a lot of cynicism. <laughs> Felt like, well, if I get investors and then they say, well, the artist should only get 1%. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to lose that control and have the mission twisted. Um, but my brother and I had bootstrapped the 4,000 in savings to 100,000 in revenue. And a friend who's a fellow entrepreneur really pushed me and was like, once again, uh, <laughs> Liz, you're being an idiot. <laughs> uh, but his feedback was, you want to make a really big impact and you want to grow. Uh, you'll be able to grow, but incredibly slowly if you're bootstrapping. But if you get investors, you'll be able to grow much more quickly and affect artists much more quickly as well. Um, so he sold me on the concept of pitching investors. And then um, to answer your question on what was it like actually getting investors, we were blessed in that um, 
because we had bootstrapped, you know, investors could see a 25x return, 4,000 in savings to 100,000 in revenue. Um, so we did our first 1.3 million raise in a month. Wow, one month. Because everything just snowballed. Yeah. So now you started out as direct to, to consumer. So, you know, talk about that kind of like running the company as, as that model and then the decision to, you know, I don't know if pivot's the right word, but you, you know, be to, be business to business is more of where it's at for, for your company these days, I believe. Yeah. So initially, um, business to consumer was perfect um, because when we got press and people would go to the site and buy work. Um, but one thing we realized largely by accident, because uh, after today's show and after New York Times hit, we got a bunch of inbound from corporations mm. and then realized, wait a second, we can make a much, much bigger impact on our artists and have a better ROI on our time if we sell for a whole building, you know, a skyscraper's worth versus one picture over someone's fireplace in their house. So uh, we pivoted to B2B three years ago, and it's been amazing to grow over time. We're now working with 200 corporations, and our customers are in 46 states and five continents. And, and these are you know, big companies that, you know, like Google, I saw on your website, it was one of them. And um, you know, I noticed, uh, so I, we did an office tour of Rapid7, their beautiful new headquarters in Boston. So if someone's local, you can see art lifting in, in their office, which is just stunningly spectacular. So it, it so is I, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's just awesome how they set, decorated the whole office. So how did you figure out um, how to structure more of that B2B side, like you know the pricing and then, you know, well, I guess I'll stick it with that because I have lots of other questions about how the model works. Um, I think the beauty with B2B pricing is uh, we had lots of comparables because there are plenty of companies that sell artwork to um, corporations. Mm. So um, we're really blessed to Bain uh, and Company based in Boston. Their Boston office um, has a non well, it's typically a nonprofit for us. It was a social enterprise, but they donate consulting work uh, to one organization a year. So we had that um, probably about four years ago. So they helped us look at the comps and decide our pricing. Got it. Okay. And, and what, what do the artists earn? Because that was something you mentioned before that it was really important that you maintain that, you know, that the, the artists actually get paid well. Yeah, so the artists earn 55% of the profit from each sale. Um, what that means on a $1,000 mounted canvas piece is the artist would earn $375. That's awesome. How do you decide which artist to work with? I'm sure there's lots of talented artists and uh, you can only you know, work with so many. Like, how do you decide? Yeah, so we now have 160 artists in 23 states across the country. Uh, how we found them is first half of them were um, outbound where we knew we wanted to be in a certain city like New York so we'd reach out to art groups and shelters there um, but then after we grew over time um, got press but also artists would help us network we got a ton of inbound applications um, so we judge our artist applications in two ways First is, do they fit our mission? 
of supporting artists who are either homeless or have disabilities. And the second is, is the art a fit? Can you picture it hanging in a Google conference room? And I mean, these artists, I mean, uh, I watched, you know, one of your uh, TED Talks. And what they're doing is just, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of art, but also the innovation behind the art too, where there was, I saw, you know, someone who was disabled who was using his wheelchair to make art. And, you know, had the treads from his tires, which was cool to see that as part of the artwork too. I mean, it just was like amazing. So like, I mean, talk about some of the, the artists that you're working with because their stories are just incredible. Yeah, so the, the artist you were referring to is Eric Santamaria. He's based in LA and has cerebral palsy. Um, so many artists that can't create with their hands due to a disability will create with their head of either having the paintbrush in their mouth or attached to a helmet. Mm. But Eric doesn't have enough neck control to be able to do that. So to see that innovation of, you know, most people would think, okay, I just can't create art. Um, but to say like, okay, plan A didn't work, plan P didn't work. So let's do plan C and throw the canvas on the ground. Uh, is really energizing to me. Oh, so inspirational. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And to see that domino effect on our clients too. Because mm -hmm. um, to imagine, you know, it's hanging above someone's desk and they're having a horrible day and plan A and plan B didn't work. Yep. But to look up at Eric's work and his plaque and see, okay, he went for plan C. I'm going to keep pushing and do that as well. So talk about the, the business where it stands today as far as, you know, where you're at and kind of, you know, overall scale or whatever you can share. Sure. So our artists have earned over a million. Uh, that's amazing. Amazing. Um, <laughs> that's what so the art, artists have earned. Like that's exactly. been paid out to, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So um, that has made real impacts on housing, um, healthcare, and most importantly, hope in their lives of feeling defined by their talents rather than their circumstance. Uh, in terms of the customer base, so we have 200 corporations we work with that are spread across 46 states and five continents. And a lot of this is, is licensing too. I mean, like you said, you, you, know, you could help someone sell one-off original, but licensing is a recurring revenue stream. And you've done things like, um, you know, Starbucks, you know, gift cards with the artistry on, on the card, um, mattresses that have been, you know, like the, the actual mattress has the impression of the art. Like, so how do you figure out the licensing side? Cause that just seems like there's endless options and how do you get a company to, you know, buy into that? Certainly. So licensing is incredibly exciting to me uh, because almost any product could be our canvas. You know, it could even be a water bottle wrapper mm -hmm. to have inspirational art and the story on the inside. Um, so how we've gotten past licensing deals is largely cold calling. Um, the Starbucks deal came from my colleague cold emails the head of retail at Starbucks. And he took a meeting. Oh, my God. Um, so I think, you know, that goes back to what we were saying earlier. The power of our artists' stories mm -hmm. um, really gets them far. And I just see us as the middleman. We're sharing their stories and helping them earn income and um, confidence. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't enter a Harvard thinking, hey, I'm going to start a social enterprise for-profit company someday, right? No, I mean, they right. didn't even exist back then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thought wouldn't have crossed my mind, yeah. So, so what has been the, you know, the most challenging parts of you know, starting a company with you and your brother with $4,000 to raising capital to starting out B2C, B2B, licensing, working with Starbucks, Barnes & Noble, you know, all these great companies, you know, Google, Rapid7. What have been the most challenging parts of actually you know, building a company from scratch? I think the hardest part was too many ideas and finding focus. Yes. Um, so now that we've really found this amazing business model, life is so much easier. Mm -hmm. um, but in the first few years when uh, anything was possible, you know, maybe licensing was the main route, maybe uh, selling artwork with our tote bags was the main route, maybe art prints to individuals. Uh, so that was a much tougher time of not knowing what would work and not being positive how long we should run tests for. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if something wasn't working for a month, then should we scrap it and start a new test? Uh, so I've learned a lot on the job and I also learned a lot through YouTube videos and business books of um, since I didn't go to business school, just trying to be a sponge from uh, any free materials out there, but also friends who are entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, I, YouTube is amazing. Like from business to home, like like the, like I just like well, someone did a video on YouTube about it somewhere somehow, and and it's always there. It's like if you want to create a Google Analytics dashboard, someone's you know showed you exactly how to do it. It's just unbelievable what you can find for there. free yeah it's great free. i do yoga on youtube everything <laughs> <laughs> now what about the, you know building a team like hiring and you know managing like so what you know what was that like as far as you know, starting to build a company where you're actually you know bringing on team members and getting the hires right sometimes getting them wrong yeah that i've learned a lot over time um, after we closed that first investment round, I felt like, okay, we need a team right now because we need to prove our year over year growth to investors starting yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I rushed into hiring too quickly. Um, I remember one day I had 17 interviews. Yeah, so most were like 20 minutes long, but just realizing like, okay, you, you should find a little more balance. Mm -hmm. And um, since hiring is the most important aspect of the CEO's job, uh, be really measured and don't hire too quickly. Now we talked about all the great publicity you received for your company early on, but you know, the publicity continues. I mean, I, I just saw, you know, Forbes had published a video, I think it was last month or very recent that was sponsored by Cole Haan. And uh, you know, it was, you know, it was an actual video spotlight of you and you know, it was a very well-produced video talking about you and your business. So, you know, the PR, like, I mean, if you Google your name, if you Google art lifting, you see lots of mentions across all major media outlets. So, 
not every entrepreneur can be as fortunate to have the story that has that compelling social mission behind it. But what advice would you give to other founders on, you know, getting some level of attention from the media? Uh, one thing that I found is you can do a lot on your own. Um, like we had no backgrounds in PR, but I think reporters appreciate the concept of a founder directly reaching out to them versus a PR agency. Um, so similar to Eric Reese's concept of lean startup, that can be applied to PR as well. Of You can write a four sentence email and reporters emails are all public. So just go for it and, you know, shoot 25 off and maybe one will pick it up. Like, were you advised to hire a PR firm and, you know, because it's like a monthly retainer or quarterly, I, I don't know how they engage, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there was probably, you know, some, has, some thought like, oh, maybe we should because we're not, you know, experts on getting publicity out there. But um, was that ever a thought to, to engage with PR firm itself? Um, I don't think it wasn't a thought for many years because we just didn't have a budget for it. Right. Um, and I, from uh, frugality in my blood. <laughs> um, my great grandmother's from Scotland and, you know, my background was in nonprofits and I actually made a thousand dollars last the whole year for art supplies, running art groups every day. So wow. okay. coming from that background has been really helpful and, you know, related, connecting that to PR, the early days we thought, well, who can tell this story better than us? Uh, this should be a focus. And why don't we just invest 20% of our time into telling our own story? Now, what about um, the speaking engagements? Because you're, you know, you're very active as far as, you know, speaking. Um, so how do you land those? Is it a similar idea? Just kind of, it just starts to happen based on people recognizing that you're on the circuits so to speak. And then how do you prepare for those? Yeah, so um, been really blessed to have the opportunity to give big speeches at FedEx, Fidelity, um, Lean Startup Conference, South by Southwest. Uh, a lot of them have come inbound where they're clients or um, they know someone that's heard of us. So I think everything just snowballs once you get PR, then um, people start coming to you, whether for us it might be artists applying and um, speaking uh, conference uh, organizers reaching out. So for entrepreneurs that are interested in building a company that, uh, you know, is socially, you know, social mission driven, but for profit, uh, like what advice would you, be, would you give to founders that are trying to create, you know, that type of organization? Um, the first piece of advice I would say is align your incentives with whoever you're trying to uh, help. So for us, the more we sell, the more our artists make. Mm -hmm. I think when social enterprise, it's when the incentives are not aligned. So they trying to uh, keep, you know, cutting the percentage of the give back because that's hurting their margin. Um, but just being really intentional from the beginning, creating a business model that won't shift over time uh, and become too watered down. 
And because then like one, you're not making as big of an impact, but two, you feel a little bit like a phony of you just threw on this slight social mission to, but it's more for people might worry that it was for marketing rather than actually having the desire to do good. Yeah. And people will read through it. Typically they'll, they'll, they'll catch on that. This is something that you're just trying to use to hopefully you know, gain more traction or have a good story behind what you're doing, but it's not actually creating that large of an impact. And you know, what you're paying the artists is just, you know, just a, you paid out over a million dollars. That's amazing. All right. Well, you ready for some rapid fire questions? Ready. All right. What's your favorite color? Green. First concert. I don't know. <laughs> Probably something at Club Pasim, a folk concert. Ah, okay. All-time favorite movie? Goodwill Hunting. That's a good one. Uh, if you could meet anyone in the world, who would it be? Mother Teresa, even though she's not alive. <laughs> and uh, a book or podcast that you would recommend for other entrepreneurs to check out? I've been enjoying Her Money. It's a financial wellness podcast, particularly geared towards women. Mm -hmm. um, now, you're obviously very busy building a company, but uh, outside, outside of work, like, what do you like to do? I still love to sail. Um, I love to windsurf, go hiking, painting. Um, my big thing lately has been, it's hard to describe, but folding books. So they, the edge of them makes a funky pattern. So I give them as wedding presents. So it'll, the edge of the book will look like two hearts connected. Hmm. Um, long story short, making book art. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check that out. I need the visual because I'm sure it's like beautiful, but is it really hard to do? Uh, no, it's, uh, I mean, it, you have to to learn how to do it but once you know how it's almost like knitting it's um, therapeutic it's almost like meditation very very cool well liz thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through you know your backgrounds you know the inspirational story behind art lifting and you know all the amazing work that that your company's doing thanks for having me well that's our show i hope you found it useful and entertaining if you did please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes also please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.